You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. We are delighted to have here on this episode of The Zeitgeist, Reinhard Butikofer who many of you probably uh, will be familiar with. Reinhard is a member of the European Parliament. Um, He used to be the federal chairman of the German Green Party uh, back from 2002 to 2008. Is that right, Reinhard? That is true. Um, He is now the co-chair of the European Green Party. Do I have that right? And uh, he has a unique position in that he is a member of the European Parliament delegation for relations with the United States and also chairman of the European Parliament Delegation for Relations with the People's Republic of China. And so I thought we might start off there, Reinhard, because you've been one of the most active uh, and outspoken members of the European Parliament on things that relate to China and its role in the world, and, and especially the impact China has on the, on the international um, community. Um, so... The first thing that comes to my mind uh, is is a German issue, which is the five G question. But maybe before we get to that, how do how do you and maybe how do your colleagues see China's role and what Europe's response should be? Europe's response to China has been evolving quite a bit over the last two years, I would say. Um, we have um, not only taken very specific steps to push back against unfair trading practices by, for instance, putting in force a new anti-dumping mechanism or uh, uh, coming up with our own European model of cooperation on investment screening and stuff like that. Right. We have also tried to put on the table a European response to China's Belt and Road Initiative through our own connectivity strategy, which we successfully uh, launched for the wider public attention end of September uh, in a big event in Brussels where uh, President Juncker and and Prime Minister Abe signed a cooperation agreement Mm -hmm. on connectivity between the EU and Japan. And on top of that, in its last iteration of its China strategy, the EU has come up with a, I think, very um, finely balanced definition of how we see China Mm -hmm. by saying, well, China is a partner, it is also a competitor, and it is a systemic rival to the EU. And that that you know that mirrors um, a development in Germany in recent years as well, where the German uh, Industrial Federation, the BDI, used similar language uh, to to talk about uh, China as a systemic uh, competitor. That is true, and they are not isolated in that regard. Uh, Business Europe is coming up with their own China strategy before the end of this month, mm-hmm. and they will follow very much in the footsteps of BDI. And and so my first question is, how broadly is this sentiment or this, I would say, 
a differentiated skepticism with regard to China inside the European Parliament. Is this broadly shared by all of the political uh, forces, or does this break down along certain lines, whether it's geographic, certain member states, or by political persuasion? Well, there's there are very few issues on which we're completely harmoniously united. Right. Uh, Brexit might be a <laughs> striking example uh, yes. to the positive. Um, but I would say that when I look back over the last 10 years, um, then we have come closer together. And the last report that the European Parliament adopted on EU-China relations was probably the most critical and the most unanimous mm -hmm. that we ever produced. And I would say the fact that my colleagues um, consented to having me as a chair of the China delegation when we would not have had a way from my own group to power me into that position. So I, yes. I was able to take the position because all the other major groups consented yeah. to that. It, it reflects also a certain level of agreement on the basic approach. Okay. Um, you know, the uh, for a long time in the United States, people have accused Germany and Europeans in general of being uh, of not being willing to stand up to China being more interested in their commercial interests in their um, in their trade and investment relationships with China and seeing China as an economic opportunity which uh, took priority over other concerns but I hear you describing that process changing and a and a much more nuanced um, uh, view of how to deal with China I'm sure we will talk about 5G in a second, yes. and you will see then that in Germany, very interestingly, the security community is standing up uh, in an unprecedented way to the mercantilist inclinations of some of our leaders. Uh, but more broadly, I would say that indeed uh, Germany and Europe have moved, yeah. have been taking note of the fact that China is in a way changing and that we have to respond. I recall many meetings with uh, Bob Zelik right. when he would advocate his famous responsible stakeholder. Responsible stakeholdership. We have had to acknowledge that China in no way wants to be a responsible stakeholder. China is pursuing a policy, and this has not always been the case. Mm -hmm. As long as China was following the advice of Deng Xiaoping about reform and opening up for almost 40 years, yeah. 35 I might say, they were taking a different approach. But since Xi Jinping took over, and some of that started even before, China has shifted yeah. internally. Gray zones of limited liberty have disappeared. Yeah. 
human rights defenders have been prosecuted in a very, very heavy way. The oppression of ethnic minorities is being documented in the most deplorable way in the camps in Xinjiang. Especially in Xinjiang, but not only Xinjiang there. is certainly at the moment the worst yes. police state that we find around the globe. But also externally, China has, at the, mo- at the beginning we called it more assertive. Mm-hmm. Uh, more assertive foreign policy. I, I think it's becoming too weak a term. More coercive, perhaps. More coercive. Um, and even though China, in their own, well, maybe I shouldn't say China. I should, should say the party state. Yeah. Because it's really the Communist Party that has taken control of the state institutions and monopolizes them. The, the party state pursues a foreign policy that even though it, the propaganda says they support multilateralism and international rule of law, that's the opposite of what they do. And they are not respecting international uh, law as regards to maritime law. They're not respecting their obligations under the sino British agreement as regards Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Yep. And when you look at how they organize their own Belt and Road Initiative, it's not multilateral. It's hegemonic. Yes. It's hub and spokes. Maybe ironically you could say it's multilateralism with Chinese characteristics. <laughs> and also with regard to the business relationship. When China's Made in China 2025 strategy became known, it was a bitter awakening for some. Because it's a threat to so many areas of European um, preeminence, uh, among other things. Look, I would not criticize uh, the Chinese leadership for being ambitious in their own industrial policy. But when they combine this ambition with a nationalist mm-hmm. policy, with a policy that promising promises the rest of the world to be crowded out, right? that is not exactly what we had been looking for when we were talking about win-win or uh, partnership. Yeah. And so in many ways... I know that there is now a discussion in the U.S. about decoupling from China. Yes. But in many ways, China started to decouple from the West mm-hmm. um, and took advantage of our leniency with regard to their breach of WTO rules for too long. Yes. So that basically became a necessity to own up to the changes, and to the need to find a new answer to that. Right. And that that's, I think, a good place to switch to the 5G question, which is, in some ways, the, the current uh, topic. Um, and it, in, it embodies several of the concerns that you've, you've outlined. Um, you know, fundamentally, it is a question of, of whether, whether European countries 
um, are taking an unacceptable risk um, in uh, allowing Chinese uh, companies that are subject to ultimately to the control of the party state, as you described it, um, uh, for being responsible for one of the most advanced um, elements of uh, digital infrastructure um, that will uh, have an effect for decades. So, uh, you know, what I've found interesting in the in the German discussion of 5G uh, recently is, on the one hand, um, you have a recommendation from uh, from the kind of technical uh, information security uh, bureau, uh, which doesn't exclude Chinese participation. In fact, it allows for it uh, under under some with some assurances. Let's say. Um, now, those assurances, critics uh, say, are hard to believe. Um, uh, assurances that uh, that that they that the Chinese state would not um, uh, have access to or be able to influence um, the companies providing equipment. Um, but what's also been uh, remarkable is the pushback from the parties making up the coalition government in Berlin. Um, on the one hand, in the Bundestag, you had uh, members of the CDU and the SPD, including Norbert Röttgen, the chairman of the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, but even within the government. Uh, now, according to press reports, Foreign Minister Maas, uh, Interior Minister Seehofer, also unhappy with this uh, decision. So how significant do you see this, and where do you see it going? That's extremely significant. Uh, it is indeed, as I said before, unprecedented. Uh, it's the first time the security community really stands up. Um, I have been one of the critical voices on 5G for more than a year. That's true. Arguing that we should choose the Australian approach. And uh, maybe not everybody knows what the yeah, tell, Australian tell our listeners what that means. approach is, but Australia basically put into law the following thought. If a supplier to our 5G network would be under the control of a foreign government, what guarantees would we have that that control would not be used to the detriment of our own country. And they came up with the answer, well, if we could rely on rule of law in that country, yes. and if a foreign government could be taken to independent courts to be challenged on such interference, that would make such a company trustworthy. But if there is no recourse to independent courts, how could we consider such a country trustworthy and such a company trustworthy? And now, as it happens in Chinese law, and this is public knowledge, every Chinese and every Chinese institution or company is obliged to work on behalf or in favor of or to support the intelligence services if requested and there is no independent courts yes. that you that could interfere that could be asked to stop that so basic and and if you look at the reality there is no such thing i would say in china as a really private company because everybody is under the so-called leadership of the cpc 
and they have their party organizations in every major company. I think it's ridiculous that the founder of Huawei said that he would not act to the detriment of his customers, even if the Communist Party, of which he is a member, told him to. I mean, he shouldn't take us for idiots. <laughs> and I would argue, maybe this is a bit ironic, overly ironic, but if even our good friends from the U.S. spied on us, as became public in the NSA scandal, yep. why should we believe that the Chinese party state wouldn't ever <laughs> spy on us. I think that's also ridiculous. So yeah. in that case, no, there's not sufficient trustworthiness. And this is not a technical problem. This is a rule of law right. problem. There is, there is, I think that's the key point. There is no technical solution to a fundamental question of trust. Um, no, because, there isn't, because yeah. with every software update, you could be all of a sudden under terrible risk. The members of member countries of the EU tasked the European Commission with uh, doing a risk assessment. And the European Commission practically came to this conclusion. They warned their members of exactly this risk. Now, I don't think that the German Chancellor for a second misreads the character of the Chinese system. She mm -hmm. knows that extremely well. Yes. But obviously, there were other reasons. I refrain from speculating for a minute. That forced her or that convinced her to say, we will not exclude Huawei. I think it's a mistake. And it was remarkable that the two heads of the German intelligence services testified to exactly that same end in a public hearing in the Bundestag that two ministers of Merkel's cabinet came out, ministers that are normally at odds with each other. There isn't much that Heiko Maas and Horst Seehofer find, I think. No, they don't common. find commonality a lot. But here they, they came together. And uh, in addition to that, as you mentioned, there's a certain level of rebellion within the CDU, Bundestag yeah. Fraktion. So it may, may still happen that and, Germany and would take a more cautious approach. And the main argument from those that advocate not excluding Huawei is that, number one, it would be much more expensive. Right. And number two, it would take longer to implement 5G. Now, I would say it's a bit awkward to expect us to put the future of German manufacturing industry at risk just because it costs a penny more. Mm -hmm. uh, the British have a word for that. They say penny wise pound foolish yeah and then in addition to that it would be interesting to study the danish and the norwegian example because those two countries have excluded huawei and they came to the conclusion that financially they can't do and what but what about the united kingdom i mean certainly viewed from an american perspective i think the two countries that are most important in europe right now on this issue 
are Germany and the United Kingdom. And, and many people have taken note um, of, this, of this German, well, of the direction right now of, uh, of, of Germany, which is to allow uh, Chinese participation in the 5G network. Um, but um, in the United Kingdom, they're taking a similar uh, approach, although with additional technical um, uh, verification. Um, so, do, do you think do you think the United Kingdom is going to uh, uh, to turn around on this? If Germany does, would that uh, would that have a positive effect? I would say the United Kingdom is the second least predictable country after the United States. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, it is a fact that the government of uh, Mrs. May was much more critical than the government of Boris Johnson is at the moment. Yeah. Uh, cynically speaking, I would say, since he um, shuns all his European friends, he's in dire need for new friends and might not think he can afford not being a friend of the part Chinese party state. And obviously... Huawei is pushing extremely hard to find a breach. Um, so somebody told me that they even offered to build a complete British 5G network for, you listen, 30 million, which is a ridiculous price. And it just shows that they probably would bring money. Yeah. It's kind of like the, the saying, to the treasury if they would be allowed to to get in. It's like the saying, you know, if the service is free, then you are the product. Um, so um, now, if I could switch gears a little bit, but stick sticking with China, can you say, Reinhard, as a member of the European Parliament, someone active uh, I with the United States and with China, do you know what the United States wants out of Europe when it comes to policy toward China? No. And nobody can tell me. And I've spoken to people from state and DOD and NSC and uh, USDR's office. But at the moment, sorry to say, not a single US official can reliably speak on behalf of the United States because in the end, whatever he or she might say, it might be turned around by a tweet from the White House. And now let me push a little bit on that. Even if you knew um, what the United States wanted, is Europe in a position to deliver? Is Europe in a position to, to develop and implement a China strategy that goes beyond particular sectors and that could be coordinated with, that could be a collaborative effort with, with the United States? Look, I don't believe that we need the U.S. to teach us that we have to develop a China strategy. And I've hinted at elements of a China strategy already. Yes. So we're doing that for our own good, for our own sake. And we're willing, more than willing, I would say, to partner with the United States. And I do know that there are quite a few people in this administration that see that just the same. Mm -hmm. However, unfortunately, I must say this, this country presently has a president that doesn't believe in partnership. And if we could sit down and 
and talk specific issues, we could build such a partnership. For instance, there are people here in the Congress that have been working very, very in, in a very engaged way on the issues around Xinjiang. Yes. The European Parliament has just awarded the Sakharov Prize for free speech to Ilham Toti, a Uyghur academic. So who is in prison? Who is in prison and serving a life sentence? Purportedly, because he's a separatist, which is just a lie. Yeah. So we are working on the same issues. Congress has been looking into new legislation regarding Hong Kong. The European Parliament has worked on Hong Kong. And we're not maybe looking for the same details. Yeah. But the, the approach is very similar. And if you look at the need to reform WTO, another issue which is um, of great relevancy, there are even efforts between the U.S. and Japan and the EU to come together to push a common agenda. Yeah. So I think there would be ample space for good cooperation. The question is not, are we willing to do that? The question is, are the people over here that are willing to do that allowed to do that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Let me switch to the Green Party um, for a second. My favorite topic. I would hope so. Um, You know, I think uh, those of us who follow politics in Europe, and especially politics in Germany, have really been, um, uh, you know, it's been a remarkable rise in the popularity of the Green Party. Two years ago in Germany, there was a federal election where the Greens won about 9%. And if you look at opinion polls today, the uh, they are somewhere between 20 and 24%, depending on the poll. So you see this, you know, uh, not quite a tripling, but two and a half times greater support. And the Greens are in every poll um, in second place, um, far ahead of uh, third place and behind the CDU by, you know, a few percentage points, depending on the poll. So, you know, the the question is, how durable is this? What What is what is driving it? Um, are the Greens a new, as they say, Volkspartei, um, that is, a replacement for the Social Democrats um, as a as a mass um, party? Um, viable uh, on the German uh, landscape and capable of leading a government? A lot of questions. Um, I start from the last one. If you analyze some of our electoral successes, like the one in Bavaria or the one in Hessen, you will find that we didn't only have crossover from formerly social democratic voters. To the same degree, we also had crossover from CDU or CSU voters. So this is an interesting fact, where in ways we're replacing a center-left tradition Mm -hmm. that the social democrats are not filling anymore, but were also attractive for some of the more liberal voters from the center-right. To use a contested word, sort of a bourgeois 
um, um, clientele. Well, you have to use the <laughs> word. Uh, I will not follow you in that. That's fine. Um, I'm not sure they they are the um, high earning people. They mm -hmm. are the people that would find that from a Christian point of view, guaranteeing protection for refugees from political oppression is not a crime. Mm -hmm. And they don't It's rather want, an obligation. And they don't want um, politicians to feed into right-wing populist anti-refugee frenzies. And when they see their own leaders emulating to some degree the populist far right they turn around and move to us so in a way i would say the german greens are becoming an alternative center mm -hmm. and this alternative center is not defined by an equal distance between uh, between us and the left and us and the right yeah it's defined by a new hierarchy of values and a new um ranking of pertinent and, and, and driving issues um, so for instance uh, we have always had the credibility to be the one party that faces out nuclear we have yeah. now also acquired the credibility of being the one party that has not ignored climate change when a lot of other people would argue that this is not anywhere close to a political priority. Yeah. We advocated gender justice in times when it was not yet the shared understanding of many human resources managers mm -hmm. that to allow women to play their role is a progressive policy also from a business point of view. So yeah. some of the values that we have advanced for a long time now turn out to be the very core ingredients of a modern progressive policy that combines sustainability and competitiveness. And from that angle, we're beginning to be shaping conversations. We're not yet where we would have to discuss whether we want to be a Volkspartei. Mm -hmm. Because when you go to Eastern Germany, we still have low results yeah. in the um, 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 in the small villages or in the small towns. We don't have high political success yeah. uh, the primary the rural success. the rural areas in Bavaria and the rural areas in Baden-Württemberg are very green but rural areas in the rest of the country not that much yeah so we also have to learn from our more successful party organizations in some of the federal yeah. states let me challenge that just in two ways and get your reaction uh, one of you already mentioned and that is the low results in the east um and and there over the three state elections that have happened in september and in october we see the green party um, performing in the election well below 
what the opinion polls predicted. Mm. Um, uh, in it was the case in uh, in Turingen just uh, on Sunday, and it was uh, particularly the case in Saxony and especially in Brandenburg. Mm. Um, so does that is that a, is that simply an East German phenomenon, or is there is there a danger of believing your own polls a little bit too much? Um, <laughs> uh, how do you how do you see that? Well, I saw a similar effect in all three state elections, uh, which it is hard to criticize. And this is um, the fact that a lot of very interested, politically highly sensitive voters made up their minds that one of their core concerns would be that AFD, the extreme right, would not take first place. Mm-hmm. And in all three states, AFD ran very strongly. Yeah. They ended up at 23.5 in two of the states and 27.5 in Saxony. Yeah. Stunning. I that think. is yeah. terrible. Yes. And in Brandenburg, it was clear weeks before the election that there was only one party that could possibly surpass them. That was the Social Democratic Party of the Prime Minister. In Saxony, it was the Christian Democrats, and in Thuringia, it was the Linke. Yes. So, in all three states, we lost highly motivated Democratic voters to those three parties Mm -hmm. that were our Democratic competitors, but that guaranteed to the voters that they would have a chance of coming first and not allowing AfD to to become a dominating mm-hmm. force. So that came at our expense. And then I would also say that you saw uh, some of the structural weaknesses that we still have. Mm-hmm. Uh, it played out differently because it is really different. You have major cities in Saxony where Greens won some individual constituencies. Leipzig, Dresden. Leipzig, Dresden. But you have not a single city of more than 200,000 in Thuringia. In Thuringia, about 50% of all the voters were above age 60, Mm -hmm. which is our weakest uh, age uh, group. Um, there were less than 200,000 voters below 30. So what we have to acknowledge is that our success is not universal, mm-hmm. that we do much better with young voters, much better with urban voters. So if we want to really build on what we have been achieving, we have to reach out also to other constituencies, and I think this will be what we will do. So here's the uh, here's my last question, and uh, and it's the the, the last challenge to this uh, the, this uh, theory, <clears throat> and that is that if you look at opinion, uh, public opinion in Germany, there is still a much greater confidence that voters have in the center right, the Christian Democrats, on economic policy issues, um, the Gulf in uh, confidence is perhaps greatest on that issue between the CDU and the Greens. We may be in a, we, we may be right now, um, 
or Germany may right now be in a recession. We'll see when the third quarter uh, data comes out soon. So does a slowing economy and perhaps even a recession, does that mean uh, voters are going to turn back to sort of the tried and true um, Christian Democratic uh, parties? Uh, or do you see that, do you think that's a, uh, that is, that it may turn out otherwise? That's a good question, and it's an open question. Um, if I knew the answer, I would be happier uh, <laughs> than I am. I think a lot of the answer will depend on how we present ourselves and our cause. If we speak about climate change and environment in the naturalist way, mm -hmm saying we have to save the climate, every serious voter will have to consider whether his own concerns are at all taken into account. The climate needs no protection. Mm -hmm. The climate doesn't care. People care. Yeah. And Protecting our society against the detrimental impacts of climate change is about creating social stability and allowing economic progress. If we frame that as issues that have nothing to do with bread and butter, mm -hmm. then why they're, then would they're... we wonder if people say, okay, nice proposal, but wait a minute, I'm first and foremost concerned with bread and butter issues, we will deal with you later. If we manage to portray our ideas as a solid, reasonable, and practical contribution to the question of how can we produce more justice and how can we allow a competitive future for our economy, then it's a whole different ballgame. And I would argue that the only, and I said that before in passing, the only good future for our industry is if they develop competitiveness on the basis of sustainability. And there are increasingly, and that makes me very hopeful, there are increasingly a lot of economic leaders, CEOs of companies, who share that assessment. That if we manage to put that into practical proposals. I think this whole progress that we're making, that some people call a hype, yeah. will turn out not to be a hype, will stay. If we fail to connect our issues with what pe voters are concerned, if we want to tell them the answers that we know and not give the answers that they ask for, well, we should be punished, I assume. Mm -hmm. That's a great place to stop, Reinhard. This has been a great discussion, and you know, you are a uh, such an uh, avid um, proponent of the transatlantic relationship and a frequent visitor to the United States, so it's been a real pleasure to have you here at AICGS headquarters uh, for this discussion, and I want to thank you. I want to thank you very much. I enjoyed this. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org 
or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.